Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Church, what a joy we have again today to open the Word of God. And uh, one thing that's been very much on my heart this week as I've been preparing the sermon is that often when people come to me for counseling, I think what they're expecting me to say when they're stuck in problems, they're expecting me to say, just do more or just try a bit harder. Okay, you've been failing here, so try a bit harder not to fail. And I think that's one of the things that makes people not come for counseling, because they think, I know all of those answers, I know what to do. So today I would like to have a look at Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And as you look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, when you first read these two verses, you might think that what these two verses are saying is, just try a little bit harder. Just do a little bit more. I know you've been failing, so just try harder not to fail. But that's actually not what this text is saying at all. The more I've studied this text, when I confess that when I, when I first decided to preach this text, I thought it was going to be an easy text to preach because it seems so straightforward. But when I started reading my Greek New Testament, and I started looking at the tenses and the voices and the moods in these words... And I realized, oh man, this is going to be way harder than I realized. So today I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just confessing that I'm preaching a text that is very hard to preach. It's, it's very difficult for when you when you look at this text to understand exactly what Paul is doing. And I think I think I've captured what Paul is saying. But let me give it let me give it a shot here. I'm just going to read the text for you, and I'm going to read it to you in two different English versions, so you can see some of the differences. The first is the NIV 84 version, and it goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. So that's the NIV. The, the Lexham English Bible, the LEB, which is my current favorite translation of the Bible, but you can only get it in electronic format. You can't get it in a hard copy, unfortunately, it says this. It says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this age, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may approve what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. And I don't expect you to be able to say, you know, see all of the differences just from one reading of the text, but the differences are going to become important today. So I'd like to start off with this one illustration, okay? And the question I'm going to ask you today is, what have you thrown away? What have you thrown away? And this is going to make sense when I tell you about this guy by the name of Stephen Thomas. And Stephen Thomas is a man who, um, who owns some Bitcoin. I don't know, just a show of hands. So I'm just presuming that most of us know what Bitcoin is. Who of us know what Bitcoin is? Okay, maybe a couple of people don't know what Bitcoin is. But basically, if you want to know what Bitcoin is, it's, it's, it's like money, but it is an, an electronic kind of money that somebody invented on the internet and he began to sell it on its own network. So you can have money that is not attached to any country. So you can own bitcoins or any other cryptocurrency and it's electronic. It's an entire electronic, entirely electronic currency. So you can't have bitcoins in your pocket. You'll never find an actual bitcoin like this picture I've got over here, the bitcoins. All right, so electronic money. That's confusing enough. So where do you keep electronic money? You keep the electronic money in an electronic money wallet. Okay, so that's confusing. All it is is a file on the internet spread out in different places for security. And that wallet has a code. So if you lose the code of your wallet, you lose your money. If you throw away that code, you lose your money. So this guy, Stephen Thomas, he had some Bitcoin. He did some work for a company years and years and years ago when each Bitcoin was only worth about $13 or 200 and something South African rands okay, at the time. So, so they gave him 7,000 Bitcoins at that time and then he forgot about them because for a long time those Bitcoins, nothing ever happened. And then suddenly, you remember what happened if you've been watching the news, the price of Bitcoin shot through the roof. So each Bitcoin was worth $68,000 at, at its peak. $68,000. So if you have 7,000 Bitcoins and each one of them is worth $68,000, depending on the price, you know, because it fluctuates a lot, this man came to own approximately $200 million in Bitcoin. Somebody gave them to him like, ha, 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 you know, here's a gift for you, dude. And he's like, okay, thanks. And he forgot about them. So this guy has got in excess of $200 million, which is about 3 billion rands in Bitcoin, electronic currency, money that's not made out of anything in a file on the internet. Now, what does this guy need in order to access that money? All he needs is the code, the name of the wallet. So what he did when he realized that was becoming more and more expensive is he bought one of these special little flash drives called a, um, an iron key. And an iron key is a little flash drive, but it's encrypted. So all you need is a password to access the information on the iron key. 
So he put his crypto wallet into the iron key and then he took the password and he wrote it down on a piece of paper. And do you know where that piece of paper is now? Well, you don't know of course, do you? And neither does he. He's all over the news, this guy. Because he's got $220 million of Bitcoin in a wallet. And all he has to do is find the password to his iron key flash drive. But he can't find it. He's got 10 attempts to try a password. And he's tried 8 out of 10 already. So he's got two shots left. And then his three billion rand is gone forever. No one will ever get it back. So what did that guy do with that scrap of paper? We don't know. He's hunted through his house. He's tried all of the passwords that he might have used for that little iron key. And he's tried all eight attempts. He's even gone to the company that manufactured the iron key flash drive to say, please help me break into this thing. And they said, sorry, we made this thing so secure that we can't break into our own device. What did he throw away? He throw, threw away the one little scrap of paper that was critical to him getting access to his $220 million of Bitcoin that is floating around in cyberspace. Now for you sitting here, you might think, you know what I could do with that money? <laughs> Three billion rand. All my problems could be solved. And I'm sure that's what that guy's thinking as well. If I had 220 million dollars, or whatever the price is, depending on the fluctuation of exchange rates. He, there's so many things he could do, but he sits there, he's been called the biggest idiot on the internet. Because he lost this one little piece of paper. But now as a Christian... As we come to Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, there might be something that you have lost, just like this guy has lost this one piece of paper that gives him access to everything. You might be struggling in your Christian life thinking it's so hard, it's so difficult to live the Christian life because I've got to get up, like Hamilton was saying, I've got to be a living sacrifice, I've got to do hard things for God. I have to honor God with my body. It's so difficult for me to discipline myself like this. But maybe, maybe you've thrown away the key. Maybe there's something that you've thrown away. Something you, you don't know what is on this piece of paper. The key to living a joyful and powerful Christian life. And if you just had that key, if you understood what was written on that paper, if you could just find that piece of paper, it would unlock a joyful Christian life for you. What have you thrown away? Have you thrown away the key to a joyful Christian life? And that's my question. So let's find out if we can find the key in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. So when we come to Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, you know that in the whole letter to the Romans, this is a pivotal point. This is a critical point in the letter because all the way up till now, the first 11 chapters, Paul has been teaching us doctrine and we're supposed to stand on that doctrine, 11 chapters of doctrine, and we're going to have to say, yes, now I'm ready to live the Christian life. What must I do? What must I do? And these first two verses where Paul breaks in to the practical instructions in this letter that has such beautiful doctrine in the first 11 chapters, 
He's so careful in the way that he words these sentences. Because what are we expecting him to say? We're expecting him to say, do more, do more, perform a little better, do some more stuff, and then God will be pleased with you. But that's not what he's been teaching the whole time. He's been teaching the beauty of how God has done everything for you. What a glorious reality. So why would Paul just suddenly swap over and say, now you need to do more, do more, do more. Of course, Christian obedience has its place. But this text has surprised me. The first two verses in chapter 12. He surprised me with almost, it's almost impossible to find an instruction in this text. You'll see what I mean. So he says, therefore, I exhort you. So Paul is the one speaking. And the people that he's speaking to are the ones receiving this message. Okay, And what does he do? He exhorts them. He pleads with them. He invites them, he, he expresses his desire to them to do, to do something, to, to hear what he's saying, okay? Now this is not an instruction. You might, he might say, you might think to yourself, I exhort you to do the following. You might find, you think you're finding an instruction there, something to do. But actually, it's a present active indicative. All Paul is doing is saying, I'm busy saying something to you. He's not saying, I'm instructing you to do something. He's saying, I'm busy saying this. I'm expressing something in myself. I'm saying, I'm, I'm longing for this. I'm, I'm longing that this would happen in your life. I'm yearning for this. I desire this. Hear what I'm saying. This is something I long for. So he's not giving an instruction here. He's, he's asking you, in a way, by expressing this longing, he's, he's pretty much expecting you to look at him and say, Yes, Paul, what are you longing for? What do you want? What are you yearning for, Paul? And then he says, he doesn't just say, I exhort you, or I encourage you, or I urge you, brothers. He says, he, he speaks of them in that family sense. My brothers, my family, my friends, I'm sort of calling you, and I hate this term, that has been called family meeting, you know, in, with our country. We've had these family meetings and everything. It, it kind of messes up the intimacy when a whole country comes together for a family meeting. But we are family in Christ. We've got something special among us. And he calls us together and he says, let me unveil something beautiful for you. And then he, he puts this little phrase in the text. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Or in the, the LEB, he says, through the mercies of God. You can see the difference there now. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, or I exhort you, brothers, through the mercies of God. Notice he calls the mercies of God plural. It's many, many, many mercies. He's not just thinking of one specific mercy. He's thinking about everything about God that you could consider merciful. The whole package. And I want to just underline this for you because when Paul says in view of the mercies of God, he is positioning us and him together. He's longing for something and we're supposed to be sitting saying, Paul, if you're longing for something, I want to long for that too. And then Paul throws open a whole cinema screen before us and he says, I want to show you something, you know, what is occupying my thoughts. What's occupying my mind? What's occupying my longings and my desires for you? It's through the mercies of God. So obviously, through the mercies of God, um, Paul 
has this mission to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus with everybody that he meets. And that is one of the mercies of God. He has this, this capacity, this gifting from God himself to come and share the gospel and see people's faces lighting up. And God is merciful in doing that. But more than that, he's putting those mercies on display for you and I because it is only through seeing the mercies of God that you are able to live a joyful life as Paul is living a joyful Christian life. Paul wants to put something inside of your motivation machine to drive you forward with passion every day rather than saying, oh no, I have to do more. Oh no, I have to try harder. This is so hard, maybe tomorrow. No, it's a different thing for Paul. It's almost like he's saying, wow, I can't believe how great and amazing and how wonderful this is. God has been so merciful in so many different ways. Do you see it? And if I'm sitting there saying, I have to try harder, I haven't seen the mercies of God. I can't even see the context in which I'm supposed to be struggling toward personal holiness. So Paul is a recipient of God's mercy. And he's an agent of the merciful God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, he says that God is making his appeal through us. Paul says, God is appealing to you through me. And that word appeal is exactly the same word. In fact, if you know any Greek words, this is actually quite a cool word. When Paul says, I exhort you or I urge you, it's actually the word parakaleo. And you might, re- you might recognize that word, I use it, because everybody knows that word, you know, the parakletos, we transliterate that as the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who comes to us to help us, to be with us and to carry our burden with us. So Paul is coming to them and he's urging them, he's, he's parakaleo, he's calling them together with him to look at the mercies of God. And that's big, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. So what are these mercies? I would actually love to just preach a whole sermon on these mercies of God. Because if we could just start, we could just touch on the very first thing and the whole time of our sermon could be over. But just for a moment, in the context of this letter, you know, without even looking at any other mercies of God. Some of the objective factual mercies of God... They presuppose a suffering person. So, you know, if you look at mercy in the New Testament, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, you'll find that there's some trends that appear. When you look at mercy, you're looking at the compulsion in God to relieve people who are in suffering. Isn't it wonderful to know that God wants to relieve you? I've preached here this same word before. Grace is when God shows mercy or goodness to people who sin over a period of time. They don't deserve it. Grace is when God shows goodness to people who don't deserve it. And then patience is when God sins, uh, shows grace to people who sinned over a period of time. So mercy, God relieves suffering. Uh, grace, God gives goodness to people who don't deserve it. And patience, God gives goodness to people who sin over a period of time. So what are God's mercies? They presuppose the whole context of Romans, where you and I are born godless. We come before God 
with an attitude, God, I don't want to know you. I don't care what you've got to say. I don't care about your authority over my life. Leave me alone. Godlessness in chapter 1. And of course, a person who's a godless person, if you push God out of your life, that means you are living a wicked life. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So of course, when you're born a godless person and you persist in godlessness, that means you are living a wicked life, a godless life. And then that, that means that God doesn't disappear. God still exists and you have to deal with what God is saying and that you deal with that by suppression of the truth. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Uh, put your fingers in your ears and shout, I can't hear you God. I can't hear you. God keeps speaking. God keeps speaking and we keep suppressing. God is merciful to people who are doing that all day, every day in their lives. Absolutely astounding that Romans 4 verse 5 says that, However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked. It's the wicked person that God comes to and says, I can see you in your wickedness and I'm going to be kind to you by pouring out my mercy on you in your wickedness. What an astounding reality. What a merciful God. How many of us want to be merciful, relieve the pressure of somebody who is in the act of trying to destroy us, or is in the act of being antagonistic, who is our enemy, who is trying to see our downfall, who hates us, who spits in our faces? We don't want to do that. We want to just leave that person to, to their own misery. But God is moved by even that misery, godlessness, wickedness. Suppression of the truth. Romans chapter 2, self-righteousness. God, I know all of those other filthy people out there are sinners. But look at me. I'm a religious person, God. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I go and visit sick people in the hospital. I care when people tell me they're suffering. Look at me, God. I'm better than the godless, wicked suppressor of the truth. And what God says, pretty much, doesn't matter whether you're this high or that high, you're still in the same hole. You're trapped. You're trapped in a place from which you cannot escape. And God looks down into the depths of that hole in which you and I, you know, with our pride, our self-righteous pride, and the lowest person who struggles with their sin and won't even look up to heaven because they hate God so much. God looks down into that hole. And he pours out mercy on an individual completely apart from anything that person has ever done. In fact, in spite of everything that person has ever done to try and make themselves acceptable to God and to, and to try and avoid his wrath. You go on into chapter 3 of Romans and you see that massive sin debt is growing and growing and growing on a daily basis. But God comes to an individual like that and he pours out his mercy and you remember Paul, even Paul has had this experience. He's actually on his horse, on the way to Damascus, to go and imprison and even kill Christians who believe in Jesus. He's done everything he can to annihilate the name of Jesus. 
And God comes to him in mercy. And he, he takes him off his horse, smacks him on the ground, takes him blind into the city. A Christian comes and prays for him. And Saul can see again and he's a changed man. So Paul is saying to the Romans, in view of God's mercy. Here you sit. When you see God's mercy, everything changes. Your motivation changes. The power to live a godly life. Everything is different. You don't see yourself as this powerful person and there's God. And God's yakking in the corner all the time. Do more, do more, do more, do more. You need to please me, you need to please me. It's the other way around. God has already taken hold of you as a wicked person. And He's poured out His mercy on you in copious measure. And I need to look at that God and say, God, if this is true, this is so beautiful. And Lord, it moves me, it motivates me to get out of bed and find myself in your word. I long to be there. Like Paul, I urge you. I want you to see how, how powerful, what a powerful motivator this is in your life. And not only does God come to a person, he does, this text doesn't just presuppose the misery of sin, but there's more, the mercies of God. God coming to that individual and crediting righteousness to that individual through faith that God Himself gives. There's a beautiful, beautiful gift of faith. It's like Saul on the road to Damascus and his eyes are open and suddenly he can see the glory of God. And that drives him throughout his entire apostolic ministry. We see God placing a man like Saul. And you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he places you before the throne of God with every right to be there. So that if you die right now, even though you may have sinned today, you might be sinning right now thinking about something you shouldn't be thinking about. Maybe your mind went somewhere else. If you drop dead right now, you can look God in the eye and not explode, yeah, not die, because God is so holy. You can look God Almighty in the face because of what God has done for you. What a glorious reality. What a mercy. God's, God's grace to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ was not just something that God decided in a moment. It's something that is based on God's eternal love that moved His providential hand forever and ever and ever ago. God knew you and God loved you from way before the beginning of time. In fact, there was never a time when God began to love you if you're a child of God. And sometimes I sit and think of this. I think, how long ago was that? That God began to love me. And I think, okay, the furthest my mind can stretch, it was before that. The furthest I can go with my mind, it was before that and long before that. And eternally before that, God had me, Alan, in his mind. And in order to bring me about, God created a universe so that I would have a place to stand and live and in order to bring me about, he had to bring about a whole human tree all the way from Adam. And he had to make sure that every interaction was absolutely perfect so that I would be born. He brought about that entire universe so that, so that the Lord Jesus Christ could be born and could die in my place. And God is longing, as the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 17, He's longing to have me with Him in glory forever and ever in His personal space. 
with an unending duration. Unbelievable mercy of God. Why would God want me in glory with Him? Why would Jesus want me breathing the same air as Him forever and ever and ever? Why would He want such an irritating, selfish person in His presence? I don't know. It's mercy. God looks at me and my smallness and my misery and my sin and my antagonism towards God and He says, Alan, you're mine forever. And I say, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. What a mercy. And it changes from me thinking, oh, I've got to do something for God. I've got to perform. I've got to do something that will impress God. Changes that to saying, God, why would you even give me the privilege of being called your child? Why would you ever even call me and rescue me from my misery that I deserve? Have you thrown away this perspective of the Christian life? Is this the piece of paper that you've lost? The perspective that brings it all into an accurate picture. That motivates and brings you joy. So this depravity is presupposed in your mercies. But it's the mercies that motivate. God motivates you. In case you missed everything I say today. God motivates you through seeing His mercies. You're going to see that through this text. Now I want to just ask you. Just answer this question in your mind. As you sit here. Is this an instruction? No. Paul is putting a picture in front of you that's so beautiful that you want to do it. That's what he's doing. He's placing something in front of you that moves you. It's like, I know Garnet doesn't like cheese. But I think everybody else in the world likes cheese. You know, if you put cheese in front of me, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to tell me, Alan, eat the cheese. I'll, I'm automatically saying, is this somebody else's cheese? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? If someone, let's say cheesecake, you know, if somebody puts something in front of you that you really love, they don't have to give you an instruction, eat this. Okay, take a bite now, chew it. You know, you're like, I can do that. You know, I've got this. So what Paul is doing is he's putting the mercies of God in front of you. So you're supposed to think about it. Turn them over in your minds. Think about all of the aspects, the multiple mercies of God. And you're supposed to say to yourself, wow. The more I look at this, the more beautiful it becomes, and the more I want to honor God with my life. And that's what, that's what makes sense of Paul's next point. He says, to present, you know, therefore I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, or this is your reasonable act of worship, your reasonable service. It's reasonable, it's so rational for you to look at the mercies of God and say, God, I want to live for you. I want to pour myself out. This is not a matter of do more, do more, do more, you know, rule upon rule, etc. Like the prophets um, sort of laughed at the, the people around them. You know, you just think you've reduced Christianity, the, the belief in God, you've reduced it to rules and stuff you need to do. Just break out of that, man. Look at God, look at the bigness. And be moved by God's mercy to say, God, what can I do? What can I do here? I want to, I want to give myself for you. So he says, present um, your bodies as, 
a living sacrifice. And it's amazing how, how often, you know, maybe this is the ticket that you've thrown away. Maybe this is the little scrap with the password that you've thrown away. It's amazing how often people want to try and fix up their Christianity in their minds. Instead of just like saying, hey, let me go and honor God with my body. It's like, oh God, I'm so sinful. God is so difficult. I don't know where I stand. I can't share the gospel with somebody because, you know, my own life is so messed up. But on the other hand, you've got Paul saying, you know what? I was riding my horse. I was going to kill Christians. God smacked me off. God opened my eyes. I saw the mercies of God. And the only thing I can do now is share the gospel with other people. You don't see Paul sitting there saying, you know what, God? Oh, I was a persecutor and a blasphemer and a violent man. How can I ever share the gospel with anybody? He said, Paul was not morbidly overwhelmed by his own sinful condition to the point where he couldn't do anything. He just went, man. He's just like, what are we, we going to do? Just get up and go. Here's somebody. Share the gospel. You know, here's the Bible. Read it. Memorize something. Hey, here's some time to pray. Let's pray. Let's honor God with our bodies. So, so it's interesting how even in this text, he's urging us to present ourselves. But here, there's not even an imperative in the Greek. There's no direct instruction. It's, it's almost as if what Paul is saying is that once you've seen the mercies of God, this is a natural outflow. This is going to happen to you, I'm telling you. If you look clearly at the mercies of God, you are going to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a double accusative here, if anyone's interested in the grammar. It's a, it's a complex little piece of language, this. So, what is holy? It's a body, it's a life that is set apart. For the Lord Jesus Christ. What does mercy do? Mercy is costly and it comes to you. And it, it takes upon itself the expense of that individual. This person is in misery and I want to relieve this person's misery. Which means it's going to cost me. It's a costly thing. And that's why Paul says presenting your bodies. Causing your body. I mean let's, let's not miss the practicality of this. Causing your physical body to be present by any means. In order to alleviate somebody's misery. I mean how practical is that? When I'm sitting looking into my belly button and saying. Oh I don't feel worthy. You know I'm just struggling. Because life is so hard. Um, what, is, what is the key here? A person who understands the mercy of God says. Okay take my eyes out of my belly button. Stand up. Walk over to somebody and say. How's your day been my friend? You know is there something I can pray for? doesn't matter how you're feeling. That you, you cause your body to be present somewhere so that you can alleviate somebody else's trouble. It's amazing. That's what seeing the mercy, the big picture of the mercy of God does for you. It moves you to act. And I'm hoping that what I'm saying here, I'm hoping I've made the distinction clear between do more, do more, do more. And the natural outcome of seeing God's mercy, it's, it's a flowing thing that makes you want to do that. Okay? So if you come to me for counseling and you're struggling with motivation, I'm not going to say do more. I'm going to show you God's mercies. Because that's what 
Because that's what motivates you and moves you. I'm going to work on you until you're almost crying, looking into glory and seeing how beautiful God is and what God has done for you. So this is holy. It's setting you apart, making you a different person in a different category to everybody else because you personally see the mercies of God and you long to be a set-apart agent for God. Everything I do, all my money, my time, I want to spend it honoring God. It is pleasing to God. God looks at this. He pours out His mercy and He sees an agent of wrath. And He looks at you and He says, I'm so, I'm so, I find so much joy in the fact that this person is causing their body to be present in order to be a blessing to other people. I'm there. I'm going to be a blessing to you. And then notice that He says, which is your reasonable service. I mean, it's rational. Once you've seen the mercies of God, once you've seen how messed up you were, your own wickedness, your own godlessness, wickedness and suppression of the truth, once you've seen that in full view, and you come to God saying, God, I want to do something, I, I want to honor you, and you go and speak to somebody. You go and help somebody fix something if you can. That's what I always resort to, go fix someone's toilet or something. You know, cause your body to be present there, fix this thing. Pick this thing up. Go help. Go talk to somebody. Help encourage somebody. Spend your time pouring out on others because you see God's mercy and you, you're performing an act of mercy. And that is reasonable. That's what Paul says. This causing your body to be present to do things. That's a reasonable thing. It's the most reasonable thing to do when you understand this. And I'm hoping it's obvious that this is reasonable to you as well as we talk about this text. What can you do for a brother or sister in Christ today that is outside of your comfort zone, which means it's sacrificial, no matter how you feel? I don't feel like doing this, but I'm going to get up. I'm going to cause my body to be present by making my feet go. I'm going to sit down next to somebody. And even if I feel miserable, I'm going to say, how are you doing, my friend? And I'm going to open a conversation where somebody thinks, oh, this person cares. And they're going to tell me how they're doing. Where otherwise they might have just gone home without anybody ever saying anything. What hard or costly thing can you do? Motivated by eternal mercies. God's eternal mercies. It's a different thing to do, do, do. It's a completely different thing. It's see, see, look at this. Look at the glory. Look at the wonder of God's mercies. And you feel happening inside of yourself something new i want i want i desire to do something like paul desires to to give his life as a sacrifice and then the third point so firstly we were talking about thinking about god's mercies what flows out of thinking about god's mercies if you if you honestly if you want to be motivated start there think about god's mercies the second thing, what flows out of that is, is getting up out of my chair and walking somewhere, causing my body to be present and to love somebody else in the way God has loved me. That's the second way in which we deal with this. But then that's living sacrificially. And then the third thing is that this is what rescues you from godless, depressed, discouraging thinking and living. This is the thing that breaks you out. It's seeing God's mercy. That's why he says... Um, I'll just read the text again. He says, um, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Then he says in verse 2, do not, the NIV says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So do not be tr- uh, conformed. And in the, the, the Lexham, the other version I was reading, listen to the difference. It says, and um, do not be conformed to this age. The one, the one says, do not be conformed. It starts there. And the other one, it says, and do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. There's, there's some differences there. And the reason why it's so difficult for guys to translate this from Greek into English is because of this weird phenomenon in the text that I've been struggling with. And that is, you know what an imperative is? An imperative is an instruction. Um, Rudy, pick up the drum. For example, it's an imperative, it's an instruction. So, by nature, an imperative is an active thing. It's me telling you to do something. But in this text, there's two imperatives and they are passive imperatives. And you know the weird thing is, a passive is when something happens to you. Okay? You know, like, you know, like this pulpit. If I'm going to pick the pulpit up, if the pulpit is being picked up, the pulpit is not doing anything, it's being picked up. But this is an instruction that is saying, it's almost saying, be picked up. If I tell this pulpit, be picked up, what's it going to do? It can't actually obey that because it's waiting for an outside agent to pick it up, isn't it? I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense. But my problem is that I've been sitting here half the week trying to understand what a passive imperative is. I've asked everybody. I've read all my books. I even consulted my Greek teacher from seminary. Like, what does this mean? How do you, how do you interpret a, para, a passive imperative? Like, do me. Be picked up. What's do me going to do? Like, okay, I'll wait. Somebody will pick me up sooner or later. So the weird thing is that do not be conformed is is a passive imperative. It's like, don't let this happen to you, but it's not like you're going to take any part in stopping this from happening. It's something that's going to happen to you. And that's why I can't understand this text, because what, am I, what must I do then? How must, I, how must I go about my life not being conformed if being conformed is something that's going to happen to me rather than me actually doing it? And I think the key is in seeing the mercies of God. In view, Paul says, or by looking at the mercies of God, I'm not conformed. I find myself in a state where I'm I'm actually going forward with my body and I'm pouring out my life into the lives of others. And in that process, I'm not being conformed. I'm in a process of of being unconformed to the world because that's different to what the world does. One of, the, one of the lexicons that I was consulting, speaking about conformed, it speaks about conformed like in a blacksmith shop, you know, where the blacksmith takes a piece of steel out of the, the hot fire, he puts it on his anvil and he smacks it and the steel starts bending and taking a different shape. That's what being conformed is. So the world is bashing you and, and smacking you into its shape and it's telling you, be like this, be like this, say this, say this, don't say this, don't say this. And if we are people who are constantly pouring our eyes into the mercies of God, 
We are looking at the world and we're finding that whole pattern of thinking distasteful and we see something far more beautiful. So in a way, I think in a stretch we could say, do not conform yourself to the world. And do not conform yourself to the world would be um, looking at the mercies of God so that the mercies of God are my final motivation and I'm not conforming myself to the expectations of the world. That's, that's a stretch we can take this to. So let me make my statement clear here. It is seeing the mercies of God that rescues you from being bent and shaped and molded into the way the world expects you to be bent and shaped and molded. Look at the mercies of God. It moves you. The mercies of God change you. They change you from the heart so that you cause your body to be present in a different way. And if you're causing your body, your actions are, are, are different, that means you are not being conformed. You're changing. You're being a different person. You're not like that anymore. I'm hoping you can see how difficult it was for me to understand this text that in English just seems so simple. There's, there's some treasures here. It's beautiful. The mercies of God change you. And then that moves us on to uh, our fourth point when he says here, but be transformed. And in be transformed, you'll notice, be transformed. It's like this word, I think you all know this. I don't, I'm not telling you anything new. This is literally the word that we get metamorphosis from. You know, there's a long Greek word, different form of the word, which you don't need to know. But metamorphosis, be metamorphosized, if I can translate it like that for you. What does the butterfly do? Okay. He sets himself up, like me and her, we were looking at this video this week about a metamorphosis. This, this worm, he goes onto a leaf, and there he goes underneath the leaf and he attaches himself to the leaf with a little bit of gooey string, and he hangs under the leaf. And this particular butterfly, the monarch, he doesn't make a cocoon for himself. His external skin just gets harder and harder and harder, and eventually... The, the worm busts out of the skin and his old skin is still hanging there but he's still not a butterfly, is he? But then slowly this, this worm that's hanging on the thing just starts changing and becoming something different and you see the colors changing and the shape changing and everything and next thing, poof, his wings are coming out and his legs are coming out. He's not a worm anymore. Hardly with almost not being able to see the difference he was a worm, and you can see there's a worm, there's a worm, there's a worm, there's a worm, there's a worm hanging there. And then suddenly, bah, something happens, and a butterfly comes crawling out of a worm skin. You're like, wow, this is amazing, man. What was that worm doing inside of there? Did the worm have some sort of a kit inside? Did he take a kit in there? And he says, all right, now I'm going to start making my wings. You know, what did he do? Did metamorphosis happen to the worm? Or did the worm say, alright, these are the instructions, point one. First, I need to cut my nose off and I need to, you know, get a stick, you know, make a proboscis, you know, so I can suck nectar out of flowers. You know, okay, now I need wings. Let me get some leaves, you know, and jab them in here. And like, you know, when this cocoon comes off, I've got some wings. He didn't do anything, did he? It happened to him. 
And that's exactly what Paul is saying. It's a passive imperative. It's like, let this happen to you. Let this metamorphosis happen to you. And I'm hoping that in the context, this is less confusing because he's saying, in view of the mercies of God. As you look at the mercies of God, one thing begins to happen to you. Your mind changes and you begin to live in a bigger world. And this bigger world makes you say, you know what? If I'm truly a citizen of this bigger world, I want to cause my body to be present in places where I wouldn't have been present before. I want to sit with somebody who's in misery. I want to help them to see the mercies of God so they can be motivated. And while I'm doing this, I'm not being conformed to the world because that's not what the world does. It's a, it's a thing that happens to me as I see the mercies of God. And the same process is called metamorphosis. While I'm doing that, while I'm staring at the mercies of God, and while I'm causing my body to be present because I can't help, the, I can't help it, that's what metamorphosis looks like. I'm becoming a more and more beautiful person. If someone looks in my eyes, I want to see the mercies of God reflected in my eyes. I want them to be able to see the screen that I've been looking at. The beautiful mercies of God, the God who plucked me out of my misery and He called me into glory unfathomable. But be transformed. What a glorious, glorious reality. There's, there's so many little connections in this text I wanted to show you, but I'm, I'm not going to go into all the details. I think we've got enough detail. In other words, allow God to transform you. I mean, can't even, can't even translate this. You know, it's, it's because how do you allow God to do something? You, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm allowing God. I mean, what, how do I stop God from transforming me? <laughs> so what, do you do, what, is, what action do you take to allow God to do something? All you do is you look at the mercies, you respond in love, it, it happens, it's a natural outflow of seeing the mercies, and that is the process of transformation. It's becoming more beautiful in the whole way of life that is rooted in God's mercies. And notice that he says there, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Isn't that exactly what I've been saying? The renewed mind is the mind that is constantly feasting on the mercies of God. The whole big picture of, of God's attitude towards you and He wants to relieve you in your suffering. And incidentally, if you look at this process, say the saint who's struggling, he sees the mercies of God. He begins to live in a different way because he's drawing his motivation from the mercies of God. And that state is called not being conformed. And it is also called being transformed. Isn't that a mercy of God on its own? The fact that he changes miserable sinners to be people who can't get enough. Who long to pour themselves out for others. That's a mercy. And that's what the renewing of the mind looks like. I'm, all I see in this text is Paul saying the same thing in different words and making one point stronger and stronger and stronger. See God's mercies. That's what the renewal of the mind looks like. It's, it's feasting on those mercies. Feasting on the beauties. Coming to the point where you long for God. Feast on that. Don't start 
If you're struggling, don't start with, I need to do more, I need to do more, I need to do more. Start with seeing the mercies of God. Maybe this is the scrap of paper that you've thrown away. And now you have no access to the three billion rands worth of, of goods that you could buy. Maybe this whole motivation in the Christian life, maybe that's the password written on the scrap of paper that you've thrown away, that you haven't seen that, you've been feeling guilty because you're not performing. But stop with the performance slavery and come back to God and say, God, help me to see your mercies. God, I want to see you. If this is so beautiful, if this is so motivating, let me see. Help me to understand. I'm going to open my Bible now, God. Help me to see something of your mercies. I want to see more. Because that moves you. And that's reasonable. This is a rational life. It's obvious that this should happen to you. And then the final point here is that a person who's enjoying this, a person who's seen the mercies of God, and a person who is naturally, as a natural outflow, causing his body to be present in places, you know, in sacrificial places where he wouldn't have been before, and he's therefore not conformed, he's different to the world, but he's being transformed. That's what this looks like. It's, you're becoming more beautiful. Um, the final step there is that a person who is doing this, a person who is like this, who can be described in this way, is a person who is able to approve and attest, attest and approve. The NIV says test and approve, but literally in Greek it's just one word. To be able to look at something and say, this is good. This definitely meets standards. This is, I'm, I'm totally convinced of this. This is where I want to be. So you'll be able to test and approve, or you'll be able to approve what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. Isn't it amazing how we sit and we look at ourselves, we go into morbid introspection, and we say, oh, I wish I was, I wish I had joy as a Christian, but I don't have joy. You know, I wish I was just a better person, you know, so I could serve God more faithfully. I wish I was like a pastor, you know, who just, who just seems to love God all the time and etc., etc. I wish I was this. I wish I, I wish I was more. But the key is not being more. The key to this, this wonderful testing and approving, looking at God's mercies, looking at this whole scheme into which God has called you and saying, yes, this is good. This is perfect. This is a plan. This is something uh, made up in the mind of God that meets every standard. It's absolutely perfect. I want to be in this, in this process. I want to be being transformed. It's God's will. It's God's desires. It's God's intentions that you can look at and say, I cannot find a single fault. With God's plan. This meets every one of my needs. And notice that this, this will of God is a will that is good. In this particular place, Agathon, it is an upright, it's a will with high moral standards. You look at it and you say, it's beautiful. Like God's mercy. You say, isn't that amazing that I can feast on the mercies of God and God transforms me through this. Seeing that makes me like it. That's good. That's wonderful. Praise God. It is pleasing as well. And it's pleasing to God. God finds joy when this happens in your life. And then finally, God's will is perfect. 
It's reasonable. And this is an interesting word, teleon, telos. You know, in the Greek, it's, um, it's purpose. Literally purpose. The purpose of God. God has an intention and a purpose through this. So God's will is a will with purpose. It has an end. It's going to bring you to a specific point. So isn't it amazing that as Paul goes through 11 chapters in Romans, he comes to his section on practical instruction, and the strongest instruction, the strongest sort of hint toward an instruction that I can find in this text, is just look at the mercies of God. Feast on the mercies of God, because that's what Paul is doing. He's coming to them and saying, do you want to know where I get all of my motivation? Look at this. And he shows them the mercies of God. And the people are like, yeah, Paul, we want to be in this with you. So Stephen Thomas, the guy we were speaking about a moment ago, he only needs one thing. Just this one little scrap of paper with a password written on it, and he has his three billion rand in his pocket. Just one. Is that too much to ask? With that little scrap of paper... He has his billions of rands or hundreds of millions of dollars in his pocket. And I want to say that if you are struggling to find the way into a satisfying and rewarding others-focused Christian life, the scrap of paper that you may have thrown away, the whole password, is to stop and honestly feast on the mercies of God. And I think that's the key to where Paul is going in this particular text. So I'm going to be praying for you this week, whole church, and I'm going to be asking God to help you just to stop and slow down. Instead of saying, do more, do more, do more, so God can be happy with me, just stop and say, God, like Moses, he said, God, show me your glory. I want you to see the mercies of God. Think about it. Meditate on it. Take a piece of paper and say, how has God been merciful to me personally? You can start from your birth, if you like. You can start from your grandmother, your grandfather. You can start from Adam, if you like. You can start with God before the beginning of time. And you can say, how many ways has God been merciful to me? And if you can't think of any ways in in which God has been merciful to you, ask somebody who loves God. Ask somebody to brainstorm with you and help you to see the mercies of God. And feast on the mercies of God. Until God breaks your heart and it brings you to a point where you say, God, I absolutely want to give myself as a living sacrifice to you. Lord, thank you for the short time that we've had to spend in your word. Thank you for this wonderful text. Lord, thank you that you are so careful in your word. Yes, you do give instructions. You do give deliberate commands. But there's so many places like here where we we would have expected a direct command. But you soften the blow and you direct our eyes to something beautiful and wonderful. The mercies of God and by the mercies of God, Lord, you motivate us to every act of service, even right to the point of martyrdom, if that's what you call us to do. Lord, please help us to be motivated by that this week. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.